I think just viewing harm reduction as a life promotion tool is really powerful. Just shifting the lens and promoting life, I think that's it's really powerful in itself. You don't have to always be on a medication. Maybe you need to go into the bush. You know, you need to do something differently so you're less reliant on this medication, especially for issues like anxiety, because that we see often. And we know doing these other things can make a world of a difference. That's Gilbert White Duck, Program and Services Team Lead, and Jamie Carl, a nurse who delivers harm reduction programming along with Gilbert at Wanaki Center. Gilbert and Jamie are our guests today on Minobimazuin. They're going to be talking about quality harm reduction and addiction services for First Nations and Inuit. I'm Carol Hopkins, CEO of Thunderbird Partnership Foundation, an organization that supports First Nations across Canada in mental wellness. And today, I'm hosting Minobimatsuin. Minobimatsuin means living the good life in the language of Anishinaabe. And Thunderbird chose that as a name for the podcast because it captures what we all hope for, for ourselves and those that we care about. This podcast aims to seek and share insight about addictions and mental health issues that many of First Nations families and communities are dealing with. We're going to be fearless and have thoughtful and informative conversations with some of the leading voices in Indigenous wellness. Our aim is the same as Thunderbirds, to offer support in addressing substance use and addictions issues through a holistic approach to healing and wellness, one that is grounded in culture, Indigenous ways of knowing, with a connection to community and above all else, with kindness and compassion. Gilbert and Jamie are our guests today on Minobimazuin. Jamie Carl is an Indigenous nurse from the Algonquin community of Kitigunzibi and Anishinaabeg. Jamie has been a nurse for over 10 years in her community and is very passionate about Indigenous health. Her nursing experience includes acute care, palliative care, community care, maternal and child health, She's been a second attendant in midwifery and is now working in the field of substance use. And Gilbert, Gilbert White Duck, also is Anishinaabek Algonquin from the Kitigunzibi Anishinaabek First Nation community. He has served as chief of the community for many years. He holds a Bachelor of Social Work, a Bachelor of Education, Master's of Education, and an honorary doctorate from University of Ottawa that he received for his work in the field of education. He is still continuing in his education. He's presently completing an Indigenous Law Certificate at U of Ottawa. He has worked as a clinical coordinator, residential counselor, and now as the program and services team lead for the past eight years at the Wanaki Center, which he likes to refer to as a wellness center. It's located at the Kitikinzibi Anishinaabek First Nation community next to the community of Manawaki, Quebec. The Wanaki Center serves all First Nations people residing in the province of Quebec as well as Inuit from northern Quebec. The Wanaki Centre also serves other First Nations people from across Canada. They provide a wellness program that supports First Nations and Inuit 
to discover the strengths that they carry. Welcome to the podcast, Gilbert and Jamie. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having us. Awesome. So we've been running a series on treatment centers for our podcast listeners. We want them to have a better understanding of what a what a treatment center does, what the quality is, the great work that they do. And we're talking about First Nations governed um, addictions treatment centers across Canada. And uh, we're happy to have Wanaki join us today. Um, can you start off by telling us how do the standards of excellence that you work with help you address the needs of First Nations and Inuit people seeking support for opioids and methamphetamine use? Well, the standards that we, we have established are guideposts in working with individuals with op, you know, opioid dependency and methamphetamine dependency. Although there are standards and they're important, it's really reaching out to people where they're at. And it's really based on the teachings that we, we try to carry to the best of our efforts, the seven grandfather teachings, and being guided of starting again where the person's at and acknowledging the strengths that they carry. Because too often we might be looking at deficits and that's not where we want to go. So the standards allow us to ensure that we work within that framework of the teachings that we have gotten from elders and whatnot. And the standards are only guideposts and nothing else. And we have to be very careful because when we follow too closely you know, establish accreditation standards, we might lose ourselves in that humanity, mm. in that humanity that's so important when dealing with people with dependencies of all kinds who, who are on a journey of their own and, and we're there to walk alongside of them and, and, and to show our presence and to show that they are not alone. So the guideposts mm-hmm. uh, of, you know, of standards of excellence are important to allow us also to do an evaluation, evaluate what we're doing, looking at how we can improve. And that comes from the people, you know, that we work with. It comes from families. It comes from staff. So all of that is developing towards excellence. Excellence not for the center, but excellence with the purpose of the people that we work with. That's incredible. It's incredible what you're saying, Gilbert, because you're talking about culture within standards of excellence. They don't have to be in conflict, but it's putting people and humanity first and then understanding how they benefit First Nations and Inuit people and that you want to be accountable to them first rather than, you know, to some agency outside of Wanaki Center that you want to make sure that your services are making a difference for the people you serve and the standards of excellence help to guide you along that path as long as you stick to your values as an organization, that you're strength-based, that you're focused on walking alongside people, that you are then set, you set yourselves up to be uh, quality high quality services that are culturally relevant and meaningful. And we do know, and I mean, and all of the great work that Thunderbird has done, and we know culture as healing is such an important piece of all of the work that we do. 
I sometimes call it the cornerstone, but it's really not the cornerstone. It's what holds up everything else. It's the foundation. Exactly. And, and, and without that, and we see it. We see it with the people we work with. How the change occurs, whether they're connecting a little or a lot, irregardless, when they're beginning to connect, we see the change physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. And that is so wonderful to see. And, and it's a medicine. It's a medicine, you know, that they begin to give themselves, you know, in that healing process and journey. And in turn, when they're healthier, as I, as I always believe, they become medicine for other people. And, and it's right. kind of part of, the, part of the circle. The medicine that you're talking about is culture. Yes. That connection to culture, connection to identity. So these are our First Nations and Inuit people coming um, to Wanakee Center for help with their opioid dependency, alcohol, methamphetamine dependency, whatever substance they're using. But you talked about a connection. So they're not connected before they come. And and through your culture-based program, you're helping to renew that connection or to establish a new connection. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yes, indeed. You know, we get all kinds of people at different places in that, you know, cultural knowledge that they're carrying. Often they remember what their grandparents did to them. But I think one of the important things we do or try to do to the best that we can is to have a heart-to-heart connection with people. And the heart-to-heart connection allows for individuals to feel safe, in places maybe they've never felt safe, to talk about things they've never been maybe allowed to talk about, and to learn things that maybe they were never taught. And and when they begin to learn about who they are really as Indigenous or Inuit people and all the gifts that flow from their ancestors that they carry, that they, they literally carry, they just you know have to... Don't know find, it. find it and then put some into practice as small as or as large. It doesn't take big ceremony, but important things that are important to them. Again, we see the change. And we also speak to people once they've completed the program and we'll say, you know, I've been doing these things to continue this. And, and I'm, a, you know, yeah, it's been difficult, but I'm refinding or I'm finding the balance that was lacking in my life. And it's having all of these positive impacts on on my family, my extended family, and how I relate to my own community. Mm. So that connection to culture and identity helps them further get connected to family and community as well. So, Jamie, can you say a little bit about how culture sits alongside opioid methamphetamine use? Like... A lot of people across the country don't have an understanding that uh, culture and substance use or drug use can work together, that uh, we shouldn't be using culture to address drug use. Can you comment on that? Well, there's. I think it's really important to understand that um, kind of how we got here, uh, understanding the, the impacts of colonization and and that it played a big role in, in substance use today. Um, so we can definitely use culture to to combat this, this epidemic amongst our people. And what do you see the biggest impact being of using culture 
to address the crisis of opioids and methamphetamine, alcohol, other drugs? It brings people pride. It brings it brings joy. It brings reconnection. It brings purpose. Um, I've seen it so many times at Wanaki, and it's wonderful to see people rediscovering their their um, their culture. And once they leave the safety of of and comfort of that heart H E A R T heartfelt work of Wanaki Center that strong connection to culture and identity. How do they sustain that once they leave that safety nest that is Wanaki Center? Culture is not something that, that can be taken away from them. Uh, you know, they what they learn with us, they, they carry with them. They don't need, um, you know, all these physical tools. They're carrying their culture with them and, and, and the practices that they learn. So it's it's not something that anybody can take away from them. It's in their heart, too. It's in their heart for sure. So can you say a little bit about how Wanaki Center benefits or struggles through the process of uh, meeting accreditation standards of excellence? What is that like for the treatment center and how are you actually able to do that? So it's a bit of, it was a bit of both, a bit of struggle, a bit of benefit. I would say that Wanaki definitely uh, benefited from the accreditation process uh, we were able to identify gaps and areas that needed improvement, uh, such as medication management and infection prevention. And um, the accreditation process really validated the importance of having um, a nurse on staff. Um, and it really, it really helped us ensure that our clients were receiving the best possible care while they're at Wanaki Center. So a huge, huge benefit. So it gave you the information to improve, to take the necessary steps to ensure quality for your clients. But how did Wanaki Center establish the resource base that's necessary for you, Jamie, to provide the services from the lens that you carry, which is nursing? So there was a bit of, um, there was gaps between, uh, for medication management when clients would come in um, from all over mainly Quebec, but all over Canada as well. There was a lot of, of issues with um, their medications, either needing medications or not having the proper uh, skills and, and the proper information carried on to the Wanaki Center. So um, that was really important for the client's wellness while they're at Wanaki Center, but also when they when they leave um, to have... Um, their physical health attended to. So uh, there was that. And then there was the infection prevention uh, piece that was also lacking a little, um, especially with COVID. So we, we kind of identified that um, we had uh, rooms that they that the clients were sharing. So there would be two, two clients in a room and with COVID it wasn't, um, you know, best practice. Um, So yeah, so there was a few things that uh, that came up and, and really just kind of justified the need to have a nurse there um, handling these things and supporting the team with, with that. As well as providing that kind of education about their medications and their health or their dr- substance use or... Yes, for sure. So what, what we notice is that when, when the clients come uh, for our four-week residential program, they're really motivated to change uh, their lifestyle and, and improve their, their health habits. So 
Um, I think it's really important to use that motivation and, and do the health teachings and, and help them, uh, you know, achieve holistic health. So spiritually, mentally, physically, and emotionally that they're, they're, they're good to be, you know, returning to their community in the best, in the best way. So Jamie, sometimes clients present for, or First Nations or Inuit people present for treatment um, to address the drug and alcohol dependency in their life. And, um, Treatment centers are not always accommodating of the medication that they that they come with. So if they're on medication to treat depression, anxiety, um, sometimes that's looked at as something that gets in the way of a person's access to their own emotions. Can you say something about that? Do clients that come to Wanaki Center, are, are they able to uh, come into the program with medication for anxiety and depression? So oftentimes what happens is the clients have neglected their their, their physical health. So when they come, they usually um, don't have the medication that they, that they need or uh, they're misusing it. So a really important piece is, is to work with the doctor, the, our, our visiting doctor, and, and figure that out for the client. Um, and oftentimes, yes, they do need uh, antidepressants. They do need uh, a bit of help there because of the the substances that they've been misusing for um, whatever period of time. They do need that. Um, so there are there's two medications that we don't accept at the Wanaki Center, and that's Suboxone and Methadone for now, just because we didn't we didn't have um, the medical side of of things at Wanaki kind of uh, started up yet. But any other medication we 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 accept, and we if there's any special medications, we we um, we discuss it as a clinical team, and and we move forward from there. Jamie, you were just saying that that as a treatment center for addictions, that you help First Nations and Inuit people seek the medical attention they need to ensure that they have all of their needs taken care of. So for example, if they have anxiety and depression or are using exist, misusing existing prescriptions, that they get attention for that. One of the things that you said was that we at Wanaki Center are not able to provide methadone or suboxone at the current moment because of the need for additional medical medical support. That too speaks about quality and that you're aware of the resources that are required. And even though you're a nurse, that you are not licensed for that scope of practice. Is that right? It's less of an issue with Suboxone because it is it does come in a tablet form. But when it comes to methadone, you need to be a specialized doctor to prescribe. And the clients need to um, get to the pharmacy to be able to, uh, to take their, their methadone. So it's a little bit more complex uh, to be able to provide uh, methadone at, at the center. But Wanaki Center, as I understand it, invests in harm reduction. And so, Gilbert, can you tell us a little bit more about the innovation that Wanaki Center has implemented to help people who have opioid methamphetamine dependency well, challenges? Well, part of the work that, that we've been doing, and we spoke earlier, uh, Jamie was speaking about accreditation, and, and I spoke about it too. I do want to mention uh, in regards to accreditation, if I may, that you know, we, we work with Accreditation Canada, 
to get our, uh, our accreditation that we recently received. But in looking at the standards that Accreditation Canada uses, we, we've quickly realized it's certainly not an indigenous approach. It's, it's a mainstream approach. And there lies, from our view, the importance of developing our own indigenous accreditation mechanism that will indeed meet the needs of our, we call them treatment, but of what I call wellness centers, where people come to seek wellness. And that, and that for me is going to be really important going forward. And I think we're very capable of doing it. And it's a matter of putting the mechanism in place. And I do, I do hope it, it will happen. Now, I, I do know that Accreditation Canada is reworking their standards. They want to keep their clients. I get that. But at the same time, I believe that we as Indigenous people can develop a mechanism that will come to truly support what's being done throughout the centers in Canada for all of those who may want to get on board. Now, in regards to harm reduction and whatnot and innovative ways, uh, Jamie and I have, have, have worked together in, in both in working with the individual, the participants in the program, uh, who are family, really they're, they're our family, you know, and that connection, that, that's very important, even though they come from all over, we do present uh, relevant information around uh, harm reduction. But I do want to note that, you know, out of many years, close to 10 years now, uh, that I can say, when we look at the statistics, the issue of opioids and the use of opioids doesn't stand out in the information that we get as being uh, a drug of choice. What we do see, though, of course, we, uh, and we see it elsewhere, where alcohol is always predominant, methamphetamines is very present, and then, of course, there is cocaine also mixed in that. Now, we know and we've learned that opioids are slowly making their way part of cocaine and other things. So we're doing a lot of work in educating individuals about this because we're saying you can make the choice, but at least you're informed about how harm reduction can help you maintain your health, take care of your health, not pass on, you know, HIV or hepatitis and whatnot. And we do work also with frontline workers because we have found that not all, but many communities are reluctant to be talking about this at the community level, viewing it as enabling. And, and we're coming and, and talking to people listening to where they stand and saying it's not about enabling it's about it's about life it's about possibly saving a life to allow somebody to have another breath for another day you know rather have somebody <laughs> with something rather than you know they've OD'd and they're gone so and Jamie and I present with whoever and whatever and we've come to see very clearly that there's a lack of education all around that. And we're trying to break down the walls of fear and saying, again, you know, you fear when you don't know. And now, and now that you know, you're less fearful. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that that existed. I didn't know that I can. And, and these are tools also that frontline workers can use when working with individuals that are coming before them that are indeed, uh, you know, have these dependencies and whatnot. And, and in doing that also, I always say it's respecting the individual where they're at without judgment. 
this thing about without judgment of who they are, what they're doing, and whether they decide to stop consuming or not. And and we we clearly believe that that harm reduction is another strategy, if we can call it that, for recovery. It's just one of, one of these other things. And this is what we try to inform people. And generally, it's been very well received that we're able to do this. We're trying to do as m- many as we can, reaching out to people in both French and English for the communities that use French also. And, and it's surprising how, how, uh, how people are appreciative of the fact that, that we're doing that because even nurses, social workers, wellness workers very often, unfortunately, I've heard very little about this. And again, again, our goal in the back of our mind is that everyone in the community should be aware about it. And, and of course, we also do a workshop on the lock zone in particular. And, and we do that with all the participants. And when we're done with the training, we say, do you want a kit? We'll make a kit available to you. We send a kit to everyone. And wherever we go to and present, everybody can get a kit because we believe that every household should have an naloxone kit, just like we have a first aid kit. Hopefully, we'll never need to use it, but when we do, it's there. And you can let communities know that they can order naloxone kits from Thunderbird, and we will ship them out to communities, so as as many Mm -hmm. as they need. Thank you so much for doing that kind of education and helping people to have um, a different way of thinking around life-saving measures that matches that value you talked about earlier, focus on humanity, that people have the right to live, they have the right to that breath of life, and we have to support each other in supporting that breath of life. Thank you for that awesome, awesome, incredible work that you're doing to educate um, all of the workforce working with First Nations, and, uh, and I imagine the workforce that is also serving Inuit populations as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. What are you hearing back from those communities when you do deliver the education on understanding the role of medication to support people um, in in their dependency or naloxone to save their life and give them another chance at another day? Um, what are communities talking about um, with you when when you're giving them this information, what kind of solutions or what what are they struggling with? So every community is different. Uh, we, we hear often that everyone is struggling uh, to have the proper resources. We often hear that there aren't enough NADAP, which are uh, native, uh, national native alcohol and drug abuse program workers within the communities, and that it can be really overwhelming. Um, in regards to harm reduction, it's been really well-received in different communities and they're really interested in getting their hands on different types of tools but we recognize that every community is different in in where they're at with accepting harm reduction within their communities so we're baby stepping our way um, introducing introducing harm reduction into different communities but it's it's been really well received and i think the other thing uh, i mean with this information as communities are developing uh, the, the, their own approaches that are meaningful to them. We've we've started to see, and it's been going on for, you know, during COVID and after COVID now, and all of that, all of uh, that, that brought. We're seeing people, in order to come and support individuals, honor them for who they are, whether they're continuing to use or not, 
they're going back to the land. And they're having lots of activity, sometimes groups of women, groups of men, or co-ed and all of that. They're spending a week or two weeks, whatever it may be, on ancestral territory with elders and all of that. And more and more of that is being done as resources become available and they can pull it together. And that is, that is indeed very, so wonderful because, because the connection mm-hmm. to the land is, again, that form of medicine to help people that are struggling and, again, not feeling that I'm, I'm all alone. This is meaningful. I can, I can bring myself back to these things. And, and, and we're seeing that more and more as I speak to uh, numerous communities, and uh, I'm pleased by that. And I think... You know, we're going to try to find ways that approaches that they are taking taking is shared also with other communities so that they can consider to do that. But Jamie is right. Uh, the the frontline workers very often feel alone, are not sure where to go for support. There's limited resources. They feel overwhelmed by many <clears throat> many things. You know, where do I go and get, you know, which hospital, this and that and whatnot. And no doubt there is more uh, need for support for for intervention, but also working with someone over the long term or working with many people over the long term. Because as we often say, it's not because you've come to a wellness center for four, five, or whatever number of weeks that it's over. And that our centers are part of a continuum of care, and therefore it needs to continue. And that's where re- resourcing right. and support is Resourcing so and support for First Nations communities so that they have the capacity to respond. It's not that they are opposed to harm reduction, but once they have the education, they feel empowered, they feel relieved, they feel like they have something that they can offer to First Nations people to make a difference. Thank you for clarifying that. I often hear from many people decision makers or policy makers, that First Nations are opposed to harm reduction. And and so I say the same thing. It's not that they're opposed, they just don't understand it. It's We can't keep up with the need for further understanding. And so this podcast actually is one way. So thank you so much for sharing that perspective of the communities that you're working with, that the education that you are providing around harm reduction is medicine because it immediately addresses the fear. And then you validate that for them. They, by saying to them that simple message that not knowing is what causes the fear. Once you know, now you can do something different. And, and that validation says to people, it's not because I don't want to, it's because I didn't know. I believe something that is an old thought that no longer serves, that old thought that says you're just enabling people if you support them in whatever ways that you do through harm reduction. So thank you so much again for for destigmatizing the help that people have the right to, that First Nations and Inuit populations have the right to health and no one has the right to say you have to do it this way or you have to do it that way. You have to completely abstain that that's not reality. That's not humanity. Thank you again for that. So you've talked about your residential program. You talked about your outreach. Can you say a little bit about your virtual 
services and the difference that you've made through virtual outreach, um, virtual educational programs? Accessing healthcare uh, can be really difficult in in remote and rural communities. So we've added uh, health education workshops to our virtual programming. We offer uh, healing through balanced nutrition, smoking cessation, uh, the importance of of oral hygiene, uh, sexual health awareness, understanding diabetes, and, and of course, our harm reduction workshop. And they've been really well received. and, And it's been such an honor to see uh, our clients sharing this information immediately with their family members at home because they are taking um, their virtual programming from from their home so they're able to share this information with their loved ones and it, it reaches it reaches more people immediately and immediately which is amazing and it really the the virtual program really showed us that we can reach individuals who might not be able to attend our residential program. Um, you know, it, it offers great a great deal of flexibility. Uh, it, it, it meets the needs of different people who have different needs. For example, people who can't leave their community, people with young children, uh, people with, with high medical needs, and, and people who are still using. Uh, we don't turn them away, so if they're still using, they can still attend our virtual programs. It's really great to see that uh, we're reaching a new clientele. Mm-hmm. A new audience. A new audience, yeah. And I would add to that is that, I mean, we began the virtual program in June 2020 and have been doing it all along. It's a four-week program and, it, and, and it's been set up to accommodate young, young uh, parents. So we begin at 9.30 in the morning and go till noon so that parents have time in the morning to take care of their kids, daycare, school, whatever. And then mm-hmm. we finish a tree. So mm-hmm. we've set it up and, it, and it's flexible. So we've been able to reach uh, many people who otherwise would never have come to, to seek a program. Our flexibility also within the program. And again, the program is intended to get people to think, to reflect, to look, to hopefully develop a wellness plan. And and, and the, the, the virtual program, it's not only the program, it's, it's the follow-up after, the connections after, before and after ensuring that we make ourselves available uh, to people. So that, that's important for us. And, and as was indicated, the program, someone can take it from anywhere. They can go to the health center to take it if they feel more safe. They can do it from home. Mm. And, and you know, we've had mm-hmm. situations where people were doing it from home and our kids are around. And that's okay. That's okay. That's, that's mm-hmm. you know, and, and whatnot. That's, that's life. life. And, and through uh, Thunderbird, through Thunderbird, uh, the fact that there were tablets that were able to loan to people who don't have the means. So there's a tablet to take the program. So nobody is caught uh, without it. So we've learned a whole lot from people uh, who have taken the program. They have taught us a lot. So we've mod- modified the program to meet the needs and continue to grow. And, and we know it's something that's there to stay, to, to reach out to as many people as possible uh, again, who might never, who can't because of work. Some people, it's a work issue. It's a, I have elderly parents to take care of, uh, many uh, of those things. So we're really proud of what we've done. We, we believe and we blow our own horns and say we think we've been innovative in our flexibility in doing it in French and in English to try to reach out, uh, to, reach out to as many people as possible. And then the input. Right, the input from people because we need to hear from people. How did the program impact you? And 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 we're constantly growing from that. And you know, I think 
as a as a center, we're really proud of what we've done as a team to pull this, and 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 the, the health component. The health component also is is educating people, but it's also helping people to gain and take control of their health. Instead of leaving it to somebody else or believing I'm not, I'm taking control of my health through the support of the nurse, through the support of the center. That is so important because very often we know individuals go see their their family doctor or even the pharmacist and they're prescribed things. They don't even know what they're taking or why. And now we're, we're, we're educating to say, you can, you can ask questions. You don't have to always be on a medication. Maybe you need to go into the bush. You know, you need to do something differently so you're less reliant on this medication, especially for issues like anxiety and stress in particular, because that we see often. And we know doing these other things can make a world of a difference. That's pretty powerful, Help empowering people to take charge of their own health care. There was a, the Assembly of First Nations published a public health report related to First Nations. And one of the things that that report said is that First Nations do not often ask questions of their primary health care provider because of the impacts of colonization. That person is often seen as a person of authority. And through residential schools, they have learned in a very harsh way that you do not question authority. And so your program and the education that you're providing is healing. It's a process of decolonization by empowering people to say, you have the right, you have the ability, you have the knowledge to be able to ask questions to figure out whether this medication or that strategy is going to be good for me. What do I know from my own culture? What do I know about the land and what the land has to offer so that they have more choice in how they manage their health care. I keep saying this, that's incredible, but it really is. I, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but what you're doing is very innovative. It's creative because you're helping the whole person. You're not just focused on the addiction and the drugs and their impact. You're focusing on the whole person, which is exactly what we have said about First Nations residential treatment programs, and now the expansion into virtual care. How do you maintain that? Like, how do you get the staff? Are you able to deliver your inpatient, uh, you know, bed-based services as well as the virtual care? Did you have to hire more staff to be able to operate both programs? Well, a couple of things for the Wanaki Center. Right now, we're under construction, and I've been over two phases. So we've been, you know, the residential has been closed. Uh, because we're okay. developing uh, better infrastructure. To give you an idea, uh, the phase two it will mean individual individual bedrooms for the people coming with their own bathroom and whatnot. It will not be two or three awesome. in a room. And, and, and this didn't come from us. It came from the people that came over many years who told us, here are the kind mm -hmm. of things that would be helpful right. and whatnot. We have a few more staff. But I think, but I think it's, it, the main thing for me is that we believe collectively of how important this work that we do. We believe in it, and therefore we're bringing that to people with all the honesty th that we we can and all of the support without judgment. It's that old thing of where of where uh, people are at at the community level and whatnot. So 
right now, because we're, we're closed residentially, we have a bit more flexibility. But when we reopen the residential, which hopefully sooner than later, we will continue with the virtual. The virtual program will be a choice. Why? Because we get so many people applying for the residential and we can't accept everyone. And therefore, we're going to be telling individuals, here's another alternative. And, 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 and just okay. because you would have taken a, a virtual program, it doesn't mean that in six months, whatever, you know, we don't follow whatever the rules are. If, if you need to come back and we, you know, we look at your, your application, you can come back for residential if that's what's going to help even more. And that's that flexibility that we have as a center, I think, to be able to do, to meet the needs of people, depending what they are. But, but right. we, do, we do get, obviously, like many other centers, the numbers are so high, the need is so high in regards to how many people uh, you know, would like to come. Uh, we're a 12-room 12, 12, uh, co-ed center, so 12 is, is limited. But there we can have 12, mm-hmm. and we can actually go up to about 17 or 18 virtually. So, so in oh, reality, awesome. two cycles, you could have, you know, uh, some 30 people taking the program of one way or another. Uh, I should know. Right. Serving yeah, more people. And I should note also that within all of that, I, I'm so I'm excited about these things because we do wellness weeks. We do wellness weeks for individuals who will come for a week and we, and they meet and they discuss and we do workshops and we do the same thing during the year for frontline workers. We're going to have a wellness week for workers, and 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 when we reopen, we'll have it on site so they can do ceremony also, and online we do some form of ceremony. So we have both, and that's education exchanging. And what we found often is that people virtually in in these uh, wellness weeks, it's an opportunity to talk, because sometimes they, they don't want to mm. speak about these things within their community, and it's a place where I can feel right. I'm taking a step back. I'm taking care of me. In order to take care of someone else, I have to take care of me, right? And therefore, right. they're doing that. So we have that as part of our overall program, and we'll continue to do so, and we think it's very important. And 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 we also, whenever we can, uh, go and visit communities. So we will present one or two workshops to the community. We will talk about the program. We'll talk about arm reduction. We'll, you know, uh, whether it's leadership, whether it's the community, whether it's frontline workers, uh, every awesome. opportunity we have, we try to to uh, reach out. And I should note that that it's the communities and you know Inuit uh, Inuk uh, communities also, but also the urban centers. Because although there are many organizations in the urban centers, we're we're reaching out to to women's shelters, to friendship centers, and most recently, again, I'm pleased to say because to me it's really important. We've been working with uh, detention centers. In Quebec, they're called detention centers. Uh, people that have been jailed for one reason or another. We're, we're offering them one-week programs to them. And, awesome. and, and it's been hard to break into this, and we're continuing. But in this program, because we had to fight the, the, the warden and the people in regard to harm reduction, because we're offering harm reduction to people right. in jail. The, the jail... Uh, management didn't want us because they said the only answer right. is abstinence totally and we said it this is doesn't fit anymore so 
after all of that, they bought into it. So we do present it to individuals very often who haven't heard about it. And we know that these individuals right. will be returning back to their community. So we're trying to create a safe a safe return and safety there and knowledge and education. So we're continuing and we're going to build on, on the uh, connection with detention centers throughout Quebec to the extent that we can. We'd like to get into federal prisons to offer the program, but the, the correction services have turned us down. Uh, there's still work to be done to open that up. Uh, uh, we've worked a, a lot also with cor- uh, correctional, uh, you know, probation officers who work with individuals also to create knowledge about what's available and whatnot. So we're slowly developing that, but that takes time and resources. We're doing what we can, but we believe it to be so important. You know, this, uh, it is yeah. important. People, People in jail, people who are incarcerated, have access um, to drugs and will continue to use drugs while they're incarcerated without any attention to the impacts of those drugs, meaning the withdrawals or the drug poisoning or the overdose. And so people die from their drug use while they are incarcerated. We can't afford to think that incarceration means safety because it does not mean safety. People die while they're incarcerated from using drugs. It's not a place where as much as there might be policies, efforts, screening, it doesn't stop the drugs from coming into um, jails and prisons. And so... Again, widening widening the circle of care to reach those uh, populations that do not have access to services is so, so important. Uh, providing the mental wellness care for the workforce so that they can debrief and they can talk about the vicarious trauma, the trauma that they experience by listening to those those hard stories of grief and loss about the sexual abuse, having conversations with First Nations about sexuality um, and, and, you know, creating a safe space where people can talk about the experience of sexual abuse. Like that is incredible work. It's awesome work. It's work that needs to happen everywhere. And I'm just getting so excited by your passion and your excitement, Gilbert, in talking about these services because we know from residential school experience, we know from the experience of child welfare, we know from the experience of people who are incarcerated that they have endured incredible trauma and violence in those spaces that many First Nations people have learned the behavior of sexual abuse by people who were supposed to care for them, but instead harm them. And so attending to that conversation, you're you're changing the world, Gilbert and Jamie Wanaki Center. You're making an incredible difference for the wellness of First Nations and Inuit Inuk people. So I just want to say again, thank you so much for that work. It takes a lot of strength and a lot of courage um, and skill to be able to open up conversations related to trauma and be able to create 
a sense of safety and trust in those difficult conversations. And that's trauma-based work. And and that's what you're doing. You're you're doing trauma-based work based on the foundation of belief in people, the strength of people, that we have survived colonization all of these years, continue to survive it, and that we will continue to sur- survive after the conversations, that that conversation can be freeing um, and help people along their journey. Thank you for making a difference. Miigwech. Miigwech. For all of our listeners of Minobimatsuin across the country, wherever they might be, are there any further insights or things that you want to highlight, advice that you might give to other service providers? I, w- I would add that, you know, what's important for whether it be at the community level or the center level and whatnot, is to never stop, you know, in in challenging yourself in regards to meeting the needs while remaining balanced. We got to be careful because sometimes we want to take on a whole lot, and we don't have always have the capacity, and there is an overload and and all of the impacts of vicarious trauma and whatnot. I just wanted to say about vicarious trauma is that obviously we hear a lot of sharing and whatnot. And it can be challenging for frontline workers. I have found time and time again that it's ceremony that brings us back to a place of balance. And it doesn't mean that, that we've forgotten and we want to get rid of those stories. But rather, rather understanding them, I hope, energizes us in a positive way right. to even connect more. So, you know, I encourage people to connect to whatever form of ceremony that's important to them small or large or whatever in order to continue doing uh, doing that work and to look around what else what else can i do what else can i you know uh, uh, go out to meet the need and, and and as a group again and training is part of that because training becomes important you know again thunderbird offers uh, numerous kinds of training we at the wanaki also offer training uh, and that's part of a whole new initiative of its own offering training different kinds of training to frontline workers you know, and and even and even having a uh, an arrangement with Camdor College in Ontario to offer a, a one year or a two a two year, you know, uh, wellness and and addictions program for people to get the skills and then to get employed and to get into the field and you know with 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 on the land activities. But you know, my my thinking and, and and suggestion to a lot of people is that don't forget about yourself and the connections to you are, and the identity that you carry, you know, and the goodness. And and the more you learn about the teachings and the ceremonies, and, and, you know, we talk about the seven grandfather teachings, but go more in depth as to what that means. And and that will help you be be in a better position to, again, walk alongside someone who, who is struggling on many, many fronts, you know, and, and, and again, and again, mm-hmm. it's so important. Everything that we do, if there is a message, without judgment. Do not go to right. a place of judgment. Honor honor the spirit that is in that human body in front of you. And, and, and with the understanding of colonization, impact of colonization, uh, you know, and residential school that came and 60 scoop and all of those things and all of that. But honor the spirit honor the individual. And when you do that, I believe what I said earlier, the connection of heart to heart happens in a natural way because the creator 
allows it to happen in that way. Thank you so much for that. Jamie? I think just viewing harm reduction as a as a life promotion tool is it's it's really powerful. Just shifting the the lens and promoting life, I think that's it's really powerful in itself. So when we exercise harm reduction strategies, when we teach people about harm reduction strategies, we are teaching people about life, continuing life, how to live life. We're promoting an understanding that everyone has the right to maintain life and that everybody will do that differently and in their own time. I want to say thank you to your teachings that you've shared with our listeners of Minobimatsuin. I want to say thank you for your passion, for that heartfelt work, for the humanity of First Nations and Inuit populations, for the workforce in our communities that you support uh, through your many efforts. You've shared a lot with our, our listeners today, and I want to thank you both for taking the time to, to come and, uh, and share the experiences and the understanding of how to work within both worlds, within standards of excellence to demonstrate quality through accreditation, to using our own knowledge as Indigenous people Um, Our values and our culture are so critically important. And as you said, Gilbert, making sure that we're taking care of ourselves with ceremony, that we're nurturing our own spirit. Thank you so much. Aye, aye. Kitchi miigwech. Miigwech. And thank all of you for listening to this episode of Minobimatsuin. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and where you listen. It helps people to find these interviews. And please hit subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. For more information on the work of Thunderbird Partnership Foundation, please visit the website at thunderbirdpf.org. And be sure to follow us on social media. Just search for us at thunderbirdpf. Miigwech and thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Carol Hopkins.